Good morning. Welcome to worship on this 14th Sunday after Pentecost. I'm grateful that you are here, and I'm grateful for those who are joining us by live stream. Uh, we are having our live stream numbers uh, climbing as we, I guess, all surf this, is it our fourth or fifth COVID surge? Uh, I, can't, I can't keep track anymore. Uh, I would like to thank you for masking. I know that uh, it is wearying, but um, I am very grateful for your efforts to stay safe and keep others safe. Thank you very much for that. In that vein, I have some unfortunate news. Um, we have decided to postpone the Rise Against Hunger packaging event. Um, many people are, are very concerned about gathering in an, in an unventilated area in a large group, and it takes a large group to do. And um, in addition to getting the task done, uh, it's, it's a joy to be together and to enjoy the fellowship, and that would be a very difficult thing to do in just two weeks. So we are going to postpone that probably until the spring. Um, and we hope to partner with other congregations as well and, and have a big fun time. So um, the projections right now are that by spring we'll very much be moving out of this. And I know that we are all very relieved about that. So um, if you have that on your calendar for September 11th, um, please uh, hold, hold uh, in your hearts and prayers that ministry uh, that we will be doing now in the spring. I have good news, and that is that Gunnar Wilson came home from the hospital this week, and uh, so it's been wonderful. He's been able to meet his siblings, and they've had a chance to uh, enjoy becoming a family of five, and we're just very, very happy for them all. Will you stand now for the call to worship? Let us unite our voices. May the God who created a world of diversity and vibrancy be with us as we embrace life in all its fullness. May the Son who teaches us to care for stranger and foreigners be with us as we try to be good neighbors in our communities. May the Spirit who breaks down our barriers and celebrates community be with us as we find the courage to create a place of welcome for all. And now we get to have a fun time joining in singing with Jill. Should we stand or sit? I think everyone park it. All Let's right. sit for this little venture, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to, behind those masks, rouse your spirits to sing. The, the, when I first was hired by this church in July of 2018, can you believe? I know, three years, folks. Um, time flies when we're having fun, right? Um, Betty Shropshire, dear Betty, if you're watching from the live stream this morning, hello, and we hope you're doing well. Um, she came to me to my office and told me at that time how much she loved hymn sings and that she was hoping that we could work those back into the service. 
So what was decided is during the year when we have a fifth Sunday in a month, which tends to be three, sometimes four times a year, on that day to start out our service, we would do a hymn sing. And that's why today's hymn sing is done in honor of Betty since she was the one who planted the seed for this fun little time in our worship service. So grab your hymnals and... I want you to, to go into your hymnal and find a hymn that is your favorite. Um, we have a few more people at our later service today than we did at early worship, so I'll, I'll monitor this by the time. But I thought what we could do, is, depending on the hymn, is we'll sing whichever hymn is chosen, the first and the last verse of that hymn. So, hands in the air, who has uh, Ann Moore, Auntie Ann back here. Auntie Ann, what is your favorite hymn? 144, fabulous hymn. This is my father's world. So again, let's sing the first and the last verse of this. So... Excellent message, too. Who's next? Oh, my gosh. Mr. Gerlock. All right. Morning 45. So morning has broken. First and last verses. for the morning. 
Yes? All right, here we go. I'll play this one through for everybody, and we'll do the first and the last verse. Yes, ma'am, Diane Eanes. 539? 539. Oh, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Hang on, let me find that. Here we are.
Sing, girl. All right. You will be next. She's up there waving her arms at me. All right. This is a mighty fortress is our God, everyone. First and last verse.
All right, Ms. Chapman. Three, five, eight. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, first and last verse. Sharon Clanton. 314. Oopsie, oopsie, oopsie. Yes.
We'll take one more. All right, Ann Cheshire, I see you back there. Right on. <laughs> we sang this one at early church too. This is Glenn Edwards' favorite as well. And we'll end. This is a powerful one to end on today too, folks. So let's sing the first and the last verses of this, all right? I'm sorry? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Excuse me. 364. 364, because he lives. All right? And why don't we stand up? You can't sing this one sitting down. Put your hands in the air if you feel it. seated. Thank you. That was fun, and we are going to get to do that again in October, so I'm already looking forward to that. 
Will you join me in praying the opening prayer? Almighty God, in Jesus Christ, you have shown us the truth of your commandments. Give us sincere hearts that we may serve you with joy, obey you with love, and manifest your wisdom to the world. Through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning for my children's sermon, I wanted to talk uh, briefly about the theme of our, our um, I guess, adult sermon, which is uh, about fences and borders and insiders and outsiders. When you think about it, most of the organizations to which we belong have insiders and outsiders. Um, if you are a 10th grader and you want to go into a third grade classroom, probably you're going to be considered an outsider. If you um, go to the lunchroom and, and somebody in the cafeteria um, offers you a seat, then you can be an insider. Sometimes there are groups of people sitting in the cafeteria and there's no space for you, and so that kind of makes you an outsider. When we are outsiders, that's not a good feeling. I do like the new commercial where... Um, where they're picking basketball teams and, and somebody picks Charles Barkley and he's like, yes, I still got it. But I just, um, I remember those, those picking teams drills where people would go back and forth choosing someone, making someone always last and always feeling bad about last to be chosen. Today in our gospel lesson, we are going to talk about what makes someone an insider and what makes someone an outsider, or at least what, one, what made someone an insider or an outsider in the early church. Um, for many, many, many centuries, people had followed rules. They had followed the law. There were 613 laws to follow. That's a lot of laws to follow. And if you followed them, then you were an insider. And if you didn't follow them, then you were an outsider. And it was pretty clear who was who. And then Jesus came along, and he, he did things um, that he wasn't supposed to do. He included people that everybody else had decided was an outsider. He touched sick people. That was something that was against the law. He included children and women in his conversations and, and relationships. He um, healed people on the Sabbath, which wasn't allowed. Um, and in the early church, after Jesus uh, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven and, and set his apostles with the task of forming the new church, there were all kinds of people who for many years had not followed all of those 613 rules and knew that they were outsiders and wondered anyway, given how Jesus had included people, if they could belong to this new church. And there were times when it was very clear that they were not following the rules that they were supposed to follow to be an insider. But every single time we read in the book of Acts, Every single time that one of these people appears and says, you know, how about me? Can I be an insider too? Can I be included in the church? Every single time they were included. 
that circle of who an insider is just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, that sounds like such a nice thing, doesn't it? Such a nice thing to, to uh, realize that the church included everybody. But it's still a task for each one of us. When we see someone who is alone, someone who is feeling shut out, someone who is feeling like an outsider, it is up to us to include them. It is up to us to let them know that they are loved by God as surely as any of the rest of us and to welcome them in Christian fellowship, whether that's over at a coffee shop or whether that's in our sanctuary. So um, in a lot of ways, that's really our superpower as Christians, that we are able to extend that circle because God has extended that circle already to include us. Because he's included us, we also must include others. So, fences and borders, those are our divisions. They are not God's. Thanks be to God. As we prepare to hear our scripture lessons this morning, let us pray. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord. Be our rock and our redeemer, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in the first chapter of James, beginning with the 17th verse. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to care for orphans, to care for widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our gospel lesson includes an array of verses from Mark's gospel, the seventh chapter, beginning with the first verse. 
Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, way back in 1997, there was a movie that came out titled As Good As It Gets, and it starred Jack Nicholson, who played a character, an, an obsessive, compulsive author of, I don't know, 60 romance novels, uh, whose name was Marvin Udall. Now, Marvin Udall lived alone in a very exclusive apartment in New York City and stayed really busy. He spent several hours every day writing his romance novels, but he also spent a lot of time making sure that he didn't step on the cracks in the uh, city sidewalks and making sure that no other occupants of the sidewalks so much as brushed against him as he walked along the crowded streets of the city. Another of Morris Udall's favorite pastimes is, excuse me, Marvin Udall, is, is insulting everybody with whom he comes into contact and fouling the air with his prejudices, whether they are against his gay neighbor or his Jewish patrons, the Jewish patrons of his favorite restaurant who dare to sit at his favorite table. When anyone tries to have an honest conversation with him, he proves to be the world's poorest listener. So absorbed is he with protecting his personal world, world from contamination that he checks out of conversations if they don't have anything to do with him. There's also another pastime that keeps him busy, and that is his daily hand-washing ritual. 
He opens his medicine cabinet, and in it are just bars and bars and bars and bars of soap, each individually wrapped in cellophane, never before touched by human hands. And during his hand-washing ritual, he takes out a bar of soap, he unwraps it, he swipes it against his palm, throws it away, uh, and then rinses and unwraps another bar of soap, uh, continuing this process until he's used several bars of soap uh, just to wash his hands. Well, verbal garbage that wounds others and hands clean enough to eat off of. Jesus reminds the Mr. Udall in us that it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles. In fact, the whole plot of the movie can be summed up as Mr. Udall gradually living his way into the truth of this particular Bible verse. Now, in this text, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, not, not, more, not Mr. Udall. Um, and sometimes I think we use the Pharisees as scapegoats. We like scapegoats. Someone you can blame for all of the things that you don't want to blame yourself for. The target stays out there where you can keep on shooting at it, which keeps your mind off of the target inside you, buried way back in the garage of your heart. Well, in the Bible, very often Pharisees play that wonderful scapegoat role for us. They make great targets because they're always nitpicking uh, about the tiniest little legal details in all of these 613 laws. They are the holier-than-thou hypocrites who would rather be right than redeemed. Scripture actually helps us with these stereotypes by calling them names, calling them blind guides and whitewashed tombs and snakes and once even a, a brood of vipers. And it's all because they refuse to believe the good news that all of their rules and all of their rightness were no longer necessary, that they could trade all of that in for a wholehearted relationship with Jesus Christ. But they didn't buy that. They had been following these rules for a long time, both in the written Torah given to them by Moses and the oral tradition that had developed over hundreds of years by faithful rabbis. And between both of these sets of laws, every aspect of human life on earth was set under God's will. There was nothing, nothing, not the least exchange between two people, not the simplest of meals that wasn't covered by the law. Everything that could be done could be done in a holy way. And no one was more devoted to living that holy way than the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were lay people, not priests, but they had taken on the high standards of the priests for themselves. So they observed the Sabbath reverently. They tithed everything right down to the spices they put in their food and the fibers in their clothing. They ate every meal in a state of purity equal to that of the priests eating in the temple. When it came to following all those laws, they didn't cut themselves any slack. 
So while we tend to make fun of them uh, for rejecting the good news, the truth is they were not bad people. They were actually some of the best people around. They were serious about their faith. They were concerned about their purity. They really wanted to work hard to please God by living the most honorable lives that they knew how. And truth be told, each of us probably has a Pharisee on our own personal list of saints. Um, If you take away that label, maybe you can remember that person, someone whose obedience to God seemed as natural as breathing, although you know how hard it must have actually been when you think about it. Someone whose quiet, steady, centered virtue was like a light in the dark for you, seeing it helped you find your way. And because that person could do it, you were willing to try harder to do it yourself. It raised the standard of what was possible for you, just seeing their witness. The Pharisees had those high standards, which would have been great if it helped them to stay in communion and community with other people, but it tended to work the other way around. It tended to cut them off. About two-thirds of the oral Torah was about eating, what you could eat, what you could not eat, with whom you could eat, on what kinds of dishes, out of what kind of pots. Some of the concerns were practical. I mean, silverware didn't exist. Your hands were your silverware, and you just didn't want to share food with someone who had come in from, I don't know, tending the sheep, unless that person washed up before dinner. But the concerns weren't just hygienic. They were also spiritual because purity was something that was a central theological category, not just a hygienic one. Physical impurity was was considered a sign of moral impurity. Dirty hands pointed to a dirty heart. Touching a leper or a pig got you banished from the Lord's table. If you'd gone through, you had to go through a long process of purification before you could come back again because for the Pharisees contagion was everywhere not just physical germs but spiritual ones too the world was dirty sinners were dirty and all that dirt was dangerous not only to people's bodies but to their souls so purity laws were set up to guard true believers from contagion So that is why the Pharisees were appalled when the disciples began eating lunch without first washing their hands. That wasn't just bad hygiene, bad manners. That was bad faith. The Pharisees thought that the disciples were ignoring the laws that God had set up for their health and ignoring the laws that God had deemed appropriate and handed down through tradition and through their elders. The disciples, however, I don't know if they knew all the rules. They were people who formerly had been fishermen and and, and day laborers and civil servants. They weren't weren't Pharisees. They hadn't signed on to taking priestly standards on for themselves, and Jesus had never encouraged that either. Time and time again, we see in the Gospels that Jesus was pretty careless when it came to purity laws. If the disciples were following his 
his example, then certainly in the eyes of the Pharisees, of course they would get it all wrong. They'd watch Jesus lay hands on a leper, touch a dead child, send a bunch of pigs over a cliff, sit down to supper with a whole house full of sinners, and, and violate the Sabbath without thinking twice. The Pharisees thought less about the quality of their community life together than the law and the map that it provided. They knew the map. They just didn't know the terrain. They knew where all the borders were. They knew where all the fences were. All of those boundaries designed to make clear who is in and who is out, who is faithful and who is not. So when the Pharisees criticized his disciples, Jesus had their backs. He told the Pharisees to go look in a mirror. He said, you're so careful about how you live and what you eat and the company you keep, but none of that is going to keep you safe because the danger is not outside of you, waiting to creep into you through your mouth. It is already inside of you. It's already in your own heart. If you want to be pure, start there with yourself instead of blaming the dirt on everyone else. Beware when religious observance gets in the way of fulfilling the heart of the law, which is love of God and neighbor. Well, we don't have purity laws anymore, but this story is not outdated. We have not lost our appetite for scapegoats. I can hardly stand to watch political commentary anymore because it seems like new scapegoats are named every single day for something not going well. Finding scapegoats is appealing to us for whatever reason. Scapegoats are really, really easy to find, and Jesus knew that. So he tells us that the danger is not out there with the people who frighten and disturb us, but that the danger is in here, in the part of ourselves that wants to cut ourselves off from them. There is actual evil in the world, no doubt about it, but until we meet up with the evil in ourselves, we can't do battle because we can't fight the shadow that we won't own. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn ritual cleansing he doesn't condemn the observance of the Sabbath. Both of them are good traditions, part of a healthy life, and practices that honor God. The problem is when religious practices and doctrines, which are intended to bring health and life to the spirit and to the community, become barriers to reaching out to others with the love and justice and mercy and God, of God. The question that drove the Pharisees is an important question and one that is still relevant. In a religiously diverse culture, how does one maintain one's religious identity and integrity? What Jesus is telling us, though, is that we can do better than to point out the fences and borders that divide us. Instead, we can see them for what they are, and then we can seek to respond the way that Jesus did. 
Jesus, who, when asked what was the greatest of all God's commands, answered to love God and to love neighbor. It really is as simple and as complex as that. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Loving and eternal God, we give thanks for your presence and activity in our lives. We give thanks for your nearness, for your love, for your expansive inclusion. 
We thank you this day for Gunnar Wilson's homecoming. We thank you for Jake completing treatment. We thank you for our confirmation class as they prepare to take on the mantle of the Christian life for themselves. We pray for those who are grieving. We pray for those lost in Afghanistan, both military and civilian, and for those who are injured and those who are attending to them. We pray for the people of Haiti, the people who have been hit by hurricanes, the people who have been affected by the wildfires. In all of this travail, we know that you bring your peace and comfort in ways that are beyond understanding, and we are grateful. We thank you for equipping us to serve and respond. All of these things we pray in your holy name as you have taught us to pray each day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us stand and affirm our faith with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Will the ushers please come forward? As forgiven and reconciled people, let us now return thanks to God with our gifts of tithes and offerings. Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you for your good news. It is wonderfully affirming, and it comes with wonderful responsibility to share this news, to proclaim your love, not just with our lips, with our, but with our lives, and to reach out to those who are in need. Help us to be faithful to your call with all of our gifts. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
our closing hymn is In Christ There Is No East or West, found on page 548 in your hymnals. The Dietrichs have a, a prayer concern that is very time sensitive, and I would like to uh, ask that we go to God for a moment in prayer. Loving and eternal God, we pray with all our hearts for the safety of the Dietrich's, son's, Dietrich's friend's son, Ben, who is a Marine serving at the airport in Kabul. He serves under threat as terrorist threats that are credible have been made and carried out. And as they facilitate one of the largest removals of people from a dangerous area that has ever happened, uh, the, one of the largest evacuations that has ever happened, they do so under threat. They are doing tremendous work, and we are so profoundly grateful for every life that is saved, every life that is given a future, every life precious to you that will not be crushed under an authoritarian regime. We pray for Ben. 
We pray for his fellow Marines and all service men and women in Afghanistan. We pray that you will bring them home safely and that you will do great work through them. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And now may you go forth in peace to love and to serve God and your neighbors in all that you do. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon you. Amen.